From the McCourney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, we have a special guest again today. <laughs> As uh, usual. General Wesley Clark is uh, visiting campus and stopped in and talked with us, talked with Jenna. Uh, Wesley Clark, for those who are not familiar with him, was a uh, Supreme, NATO, Supreme Commander of NATO, uh, presidential candidate in 2004. A long resume, but let's just leave it at Very that. impressive yeah. man and very impressive uh, legacy of service to our nation. So, yeah, we were lucky to have him and, yeah. and uh, really interesting things that he had to say. Yeah, so, Chris, why don't we start by talking about uh, how did the founders envision the role of the military in, an American, in the American democracy? All right. So, as with a number of issues that we've already talked about, the founders were very nervous, right? They were nervous about giving too much power to the people. They're also nervous about uh, giving too much power to the military. They, mm -hmm. were, they were concerned and had seen evidence in Europe that the military became a tool of the executive. And, and I, I actually wrote this down from Madison. The means of defense against foreign dangers have always been the instruments of tyranny at home. And so Madison... Well, and this, this was their concern. It exactly. was tyranny of different right. types. Majority right. tyranny, executive tyranny. Well, and, and actually that's what I was just going to say. I mean, a lot of this just isn't operative anymore, right? I mean, the citizen soldier, the idea that we had this kind of just shell of an army that would expand dramatically and immediately when, when whenever there was a war. When it was needed. And so what we have is effectively a standing volunteer army where 1%, less than 1% of the population uh, is in charge of the defense of 99%. Right, so we have a much smaller army and a, and a military. And in mm -hmm. fact, often now we, uh, we delegate out uh, military responsibilities to private actors. And it's not only a smaller military now, it's a military that is much less representative of American society. And that is a, an important point for us, right, for people who are concerned about uh, democracy. Because the whole idea of the citizen soldier was that it, by bringing in representatives from throughout America, you were going to have a, a military that was more American, that was more democratic, and that was more committed to this ideal of, of, of diversity. Yes, and then and then when they when they left the military and came back out into American society, you have a, a generation of people that, in theory, had shared a common kind of experience of mm -hmm. serving, of serving. And that nation. was absolutely that was absolutely true. Yeah. Now, ironically, or maybe not ironically, but uh, you know, of course, the uh, military in the 1970s was uh, well, probably before that, really, with the Vietnam War, was a lot of deep divisions right. between the military and American society. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the uh, Military is much more respected as an institution now, and that, uh, and that uh, people Almost returning, people returning uh, to American society are. Are respected more. Right. I was they, just going to say that it's treated almost, better. It's almost unique among yeah. public institutions as being the one that folks on both sides of the political spectrum uh, argue deserve th that this institution deserves respect. Yeah. And there is there just simply is this kind of. Um, camaraderie, fraternity yes. that comes from that kind of shared experience. And, and, a, and a stature, I think, yeah. mm -hmm. I think too. Yeah. Uh, that, that those of us who haven't served have to, have to respect. Have to honor, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we've talked enough. Um, let's uh, bring in uh, Jenna and have her talk to Wesley Clark. Sounds good.
This is Jenna Spinelli, uh, joined today by General Wesley Clark. General Clark, thanks for joining us on Democracy Works. Well, it's nice to be with you, Jenna. Thank you. So we're going to, to talk about the, the relationship between the military and democracy from, from a couple of different angles today. And I thought maybe we could start with a bit of your personal story. I read that um, General MacArthur's duty, honor, country speech really inspired you when you were at, at West Point. I'm kind of, you know, curious what it what it was um, about that that you kind of you found so inspiring, and, and how you see the the relationship between military service and civic duty. Just before I, I I joined the Corps of Cadets, Douglas MacArthur, who was retired at that point, came up and gave his final public his final public speech. Of course, he didn't use a note. Um, it was memorized, though. He had written it. Oh, it was superb, and so. When my class arrived on the 2nd of July, 1962, a few days later, we got this printed speech. And um, when you read it, it just made you, it made you shiver. He talked about what it was like to be a soldier. He told us that our duty was to win the nation's wars. He said it's not your duty to question the policies. Of course, he'd questioned them as a general. But he was talking to us as cadets, as junior officers. And it was just incredibly inspiring. Um, I was just with my West Point class. We did a reunion in Washington, D.C. at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial and uh, recognized the 30 members of my class who died in Vietnam. And I got to speak, and I quoted from that speech. And I know everyone in my class received it the same way. And we still get goosebumps when we read those words. Do you feel that that sense of, uh, of civic duty is, is still kind of alive and well in the, the military today? Yes, it is. But I, I think it's, it, it's not why um, soldiers join the military necessarily. They join for a variety of reasons. But for the men and women who serve, particularly as officers and after they've been in for a while and after they've sacrificed there's a bond there with the nation that gives you a special sense of responsibility for the country, even though you really don't understand the country. You're just in the military, you know. You're not a mayor. You're not a school teacher. You're not seeing State College, Pennsylvania, or Little Rock, Arkansas. You're seeing Fort Hood uh, or someplace in Germany or Korea. But no matter, it's, um, it's a bond. And if you've been wounded, it's an even stronger bond. And so you feel that connection that MacArthur talked about. So we've talked on this show before about the idea of, of an empathy gap and how that kind of you know, misunderstanding or, or kind of inability of one group of people to understand another impacts democracy. Um, I've, I've read a little bit about how that, that might exist in, in between civilians and people in the, the service. Do you see that, that gap, that the that exists, that empathy Oh, there's gap. no question about it, because people don't serve today the way they used to. When I was a young man, the draft was in place. So when I was in high school, you knew if you went to, let's say, if you went to Penn State or you went to the University of Arkansas, these are land-grant institutions. You're going to be in the ROTC for two years as a man. Now, you don't have to stay with it after that, but you're going to wear a uniform. You're going to march. You're going to shoot an M1 rifle. You're part of the national defense fabric of the country. And um, if you look, for example, at the Princeton class of 1954, maybe 
50, 70 percent of them had some military experience. If you look at the Princeton class today, the University of Arkansas class or any of them, I mean, it's just not there. It's what I first heard when I came back from Vietnam, even before we became a volunteer force. Something changed in that period. And I remember my wife's little sister running around Brooklyn, and I was wounded, and I was recuperating at her parents' house. And she was telling people, well, my brother-in-law is back from Vietnam. And they'd say, ooh, Vietnam, ooh. She said, yes, but that's his thing. He likes the Army. It's like it's your thing. I was at Amherst a few years ago teaching, and the students there were very worried about the volunteer force. They said it's no longer representative of the country. I said, well, please, come and join us. I said, in fact, I want you to go home tonight. This was a Friday night. I said, call your mom or dad and tell them, General Clark's going to be here tomorrow, promises you that you can get in and out in two years, and he guarantees a brief combat experience in there, and you'll be back here two years from now. You'll be much more mature, much more experienced. You'll have something that you'll be proud of all your life, and ask them, should you join? Sure. So it's and what... that creates the gap in understanding. And, and you know, it's people in my generation, of course, many people were really against the Vietnam War, and they were against the military. But over the last 40 years, they've mellowed out. And, and many of them feel sort of guilty that they weren't part of it. I think young people today who didn't go in and who see the sacrifice and when they always pat people on the back and say, thanks for your service, and you can have my first-class seat on the airline— they don't get it. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's, that doesn't help, really. It's the fact that we should all be in this country together. We should all share a duty, the uh, potential for sacrifice, and we don't. So, so what's, the, what's the solution to closing that gap? We need to pull the country together. Now, when I ran for president, Congressman Charlie Rangel said, I want you to come out in favor of the draft. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you're in favor of the draft, that's like, you know, the only way you're going to get the draft is to draft 16-year-olds. Because once you gave the draft out, uh, the, the vote out to 18-year-olds, then they're not too happy to give up their freedom and serve in the United States Armed Forces. Even though after they've done it, they'd be, they'd be very proud of themselves. And so what you have is um, the case where the country, young people don't have the same experiences. What I'd like to see is I would like to see national service, real national service. I don't mean changing bedpans in hospital rooms, not trying to take away, you know, low low income jobs from people that need those jobs. But this country needs major work, our infrastructure, our forests. There's so much that could be done. And um, if young people would could come in, be organized, um, set aside the computer games and all that for uh, 12 months and be with people of, from a different part of the country, a different social class, a different educational level. They would be so enriched by this experience. It seems like the military is also becoming, on the one hand, smaller, but also I think at least in terms of, of class, maybe a little bit more or um, a little bit less diverse, you know, that way or not. Well, I think it's, from the top I think there's from... two things that have happened. One is I think... Um, Generation after generation, I mean, kids emulate their parents. So a lot of people who are in the service today, they're proud of their father, and they come in, men and women. A lot of women come in and say, you know, my father, my grandfather. But 
it's also true that, especially in the Army, the Army has moved from the, when I came in, it was like um, soldier, scholar, statesman model. You were supposed to be like General George C. Marshall. You were supposed to be thoughtful. You were supposed to be well-read. Um, but we've moved toward a warrior ethos, which is um, let's do some more hand-to-hand combat and understand how to defend ourselves. And, you know, in my day, if you got close enough to do hand-to-hand combat, some mistakes had been made. And so, yes, we did it, but it wasn't the epitome of soldiering. That changed in the 1990s and especially in the aughts and today. The Army's very focused on its warfighting mission at the tactical level. And I think this also drives a wedge. You know, my officers of my generation, we were expected to know economics, sociology, understand the political system. And um, I don't get the same sense that the officer corps today is as broadened out Maybe that's just about the Army, and maybe it's the necessary focus we had to bring after repetitive tours back and forth to Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think it's one more factor that contributes to uh, a a sort of um, distance and maybe a reluctance on the part of young people who don't see themselves as warriors. They see maybe a need to help the country, but they don't see themselves— you know, with uh, with big hands and lifting weights and grabbing somebody around the neck to finish them off. The change in ethos that you mentioned, uh, that that shift to more of a of a warrior mentality. Uh, what does that mean for democracy? There's never anything as intense as being on a deployment in a war zone, and especially in the case of Afghanistan or Iraq, where yes, some people died, but it wasn't like World War II in Vietnam. Whole rows of people weren't shot down. You were doing the shooting. And if you read books like uh, The American Sniper with the late Chris Kyle, you get a different feel for what this is about. And some of these men have come out and they can't give it up. In some cases, they're hired as security guards. In some cases, they go back and work in these countries. There was just an article in BuzzFeed last week about American soldiers who were hired as mercenaries by a Middle East government to kill political opponents in a different country. That's disturbing. And when you bring those skills out of the service and you apply them for money, maybe it's overseas today, but who knows where it'll be applied next. Mm -hmm. That is disturbing. And, and so did you see this shift happening during your your time in your, your military career? And, and did you you make any efforts to, to change the culture as you saw the tide shift? Well, I just saw the beginnings of it. And um, and so it was I was already a three and four star by the time this started to take root. And really, it was the experience of the invasion of Iraq and then the repetitive occupations that really drove this home in a powerful way. A little of it was good. In other words, in the in the Army, every soldier should take care of himself or herself. And what we found in the invasion of Iraq, for example, is you may remember there was an incident where a supply convoy got got mis, misdirected in al-Nasiriyah and, and some people were captured and some people were killed and they weren't prepared to fight. Well, if you're on the battlefield and you're wearing a uniform 
You have to know how to use a weapon, have a gas mask, have a radio. You need night vision goggles. And the Army was pretty stingy with that kind of training and that equipment for these people who were supposedly rear area. And so I think it's been good that there's more of a warrior spirit. I just think you have to, it's like everything, you have to think about the purpose of the military. You don't want to carry it too far. And you need the outreach to the American people. And it can't just be about what's your favorite gun. That's not the right outreach. I'm, everybody asks it. Hey, uh, do you like this uh, Beretta pistol? Uh, what about H&K? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what about your new assault rifles? You know, okay, fine. I mean, that's fun to talk about, but it's got to be broader than that. Um, so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about veterans running for office. Uh, I know you've been involved with Vote Vets, an organization that, that aims to, to um, elect more veterans to, to office. What, what do veterans bring to the table as, as office holders? Well, first of all, it really depends on the person. But what you'd hope that a veteran brings is a greater understanding of the armed forces and sacrifices, has seen a little bit more of life, um, a greater experience in diversity of cultures and and values. Um, And that's not necessarily the case. It does depend on the person. In fact, a lot of these veterans are just as um, doctrinaire as as um, people who haven't served and so you know they're wearing this they're wearing their veterans badge as a credential um, but it, it's really about the person and and so we've we've seen a, an increase it, it seems in um, female veterans running running for office what what do you make of, of that this year I think it's wonderful and you know the combat arms in the Army and the Marine Corps, they're open to women. Um, but um, you have to be physically fit and capable of doing it. Some women can, some women can't. I mean, a lot of it is just uh, your strength, your endurance, uh, your toughness. And um, although it comes naturally to some people, some people are brought up a different way. And so for them, they need to be somewhere else helping the country. Uh, but when they get out, I think it's a wonderful thing for women to have a voice. So it seems that um, Democrats in particular have struggled to, to mobilize veterans as, as kind of a, a voter group. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I think actually if you look at it, the vets that are holding office are two-thirds Republican today. In this society, over the last 40 years, the Democrats have become the mommy party and the Republicans are the daddy party. The Democrats stand for fairness. The Republicans stand for security. The motivating forces are injustice for the Democrats and fear. And fear is a very powerful motivating force. And so when you're dealing with that, it's it's what every Republican president says. There's nothing more important than protecting the security of the country. Okay, well, uh, we're Republicans. Don't argue with us. We know everything about security. You people can give out money to people if we allow you to do it. But you're the party of illegal immigrants. You're the party of welfare giveaways. We're the strong party. So it's not fair. But that's the way the message has evolved over the last 40 years since the Vietnam War. And so uh, Democrats want to balance, rebalance that public appreciation. You know, the biggest factor in voting, actually, in most elections is party label. 
polling from from the Military Times shows that support for President Trump is falling among service members. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you kind of navigate that tension between following orders that come down from from the commander in chief, even when you might not necessarily agree with him or kind of what he stands for. Well, there's no tension at all. I mean, you follow the orders, period. Um, I was asked this question a lot when President Clinton was president and he was impeached. And people said, uh, you know, how can you work for somebody who's been impeached? He's the commander in chief. He's the president of the United States. Until he leaves office, he's the boss. And the troops actually liked him. He was pretty good with troops. And and um, and he had a very good reception when we went out to meet them. I'm sure if Donald Trump does go out and meet troops in a combat zone, that he'll be very well received and respectfully so. And he should be. So I don't know what to make of the Army Times poll, but I will tell you this, or Military Times poll, but it does make me concerned because we don't want the military to become like the Praetorian Guard that's the final arbiter of who should be elected or selected for high office or not. Honestly, that will be the destruction of this democracy. Do you think that um, democratic dissent has, has a place within the military? Democratic dissent, no. I think that if you get an illegal order, of course, <laughs> your obligation is not to obey it. If you get an order you don't agree with, you always have, have the right to question it. I mean, unless you're in an emergent, you know, urgent life and death situation. But <laughs> don't expect your boss to agree with you. You know, when the boss says, I want you to hold that piece of ground for the next 24 hours. And you say, oh, boss, I don't think that's a really good idea because, uh, you know, I might take some casualties get up there and, you know, or you're out of here. I'll get somebody who will. That's the prerogative of the organization. So you um, always have the right to speak up, but you also have to face the consequences. Now, that's not to say you don't vote. You know, you should vote. But when you vote, that's private. That's personal. That's between you and your wife or your, your, you and your husband. It's not something that you go back to the to the orderly room with the first sergeant and say, hey, first sergeant, I voted against so-and-so, didn't you? And he says, no, I didn't. I like him. He said, oh, boy, we're going to have this out right here. Well, that doesn't work. You've got to keep those discussions out of the military. Do people talk politics kind of, you know, around whatever the kind of military's equivalent of, of the, the water cooler is or, you know? Not as much as you might think because – First of all, they're not following 24-hour news. But, you know, today, and, and you probably know this far better than I, I mean, the news is about entertainment. We have a president who's like a real-life Rush Limbaugh. We can hardly wait to see him, what outrageous things he says next. And although people say the mainstream media is all Democratic, actually it isn't. It's just about money. And so if he's entertaining, he gets the coverage. The troops aren't watching that so much. Troops are really more focused on their families and what the impact is on them. Right. Um, speaking of, of Democratic dissent, I know you um, came out in support of, of Colin Kaepernick uh, when his, his Nike campaign uh, came out um, earlier this, this fall. Curious what, what kind of went into that decision for you and what the, the reaction has been that, that you've received since you, well, you, you know, made Well, you know, all the time in uniform, especially when I was a senior officer, I went all over Latin America where I was a commander and then in Europe. And of course, I defended our democracy. But you defend it without really understanding it. I'm, 
I, I say this, uh, and, and I don't say it necessarily with pride, it's just a fact, but I'm one of the few people who's been at the top of the armed forces, the top of political efforts, and the top of business. And so uh, when you've seen the world that way, as I have, you realize there's a lot of injustice, and we don't live up to our values. Never have. It was great sentiment in the Declaration of Independence and the preamble to the United States Constitution. We couldn't quite come to grips with slavery. We fought a war over it. After it was over, we didn't fix the problem in the South for 100 years. It's still not fixed across America. There's racial discrimination. There's uh, gender discrimination, uh, misogyny. <laughs> the women, women only got the right to vote less than 100 years ago. Before that, they were supposed to stay home and shut up. It was a really hard thing for women to demand the right to vote. So I think treating people with respect is the absolute foundation of democracy. And so when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, I don't see that as an insult to the flag or the military or veterans. I see that as standing up for the values we fought for. They're just not perfectly implemented. We can do better, and we should. So something else we've also seen in the, the Trump administration is, is what seems to be an increase in, in generals and other kind of um, high-ranking military personnel now serving in, in, in the cabinet and in government. So um, how does that, from, from your perspective, impact how government functions at, well, at that level? I think Jim Mattis is proving to be a very solid, stable, reliable secretary of defense. Um, H.R. McMaster in the White House was a wonderful guy, very capable, but he was not prepared for the position he was put into, and he was thrown into a, it's a real snake pit in any White House. It's hard, conflicting agendas, conflicting personalities, and you're in a situation unlike the military, where in the military, if you do a good, good job, you'll get a good efficiency report at the end of the year, and when your time comes up to be considered for promotion, uh, you know, in two or three years, uh, you might get boosted to the next grade. In the White House, it's like, hey, I like that guy. He should be the next cabinet secretary. I mean, the ambition, the scope for ambition is unlimited. And so some people don't, in fact, most people don't deal with that very well. So they're all White Houses. All of them are difficult. I think this one's especially difficult. Um, uh, John Kelly is a fine officer. Uh, he wasn't out very long. He didn't. He's in a position where he has four challenges. And, um, and he's overcoming these challenges as far as we know. First challenge is that um, he's in a situation where, where, where technically he's not an expert. Um, he knows the military. What does he know about health law, taxation, the budget, the budget process through OMB, congressional relations? That's number one. Number two is politics. He really doesn't understand politics. He may see it now through the lens of, hey, these people are attacking us. They're attacking me. I don't like them. But in fact, this is politics. Hey, don't take it so personal. It's just about the competition for the most powerful position in the world. That's all. Third thing is, of course, is ethically. Uh, you know, we're in a difficult position today. We have a president who has business interests. He's got gambling, uh, gaming. He's yeah. got worldwide interests. His kids are out there all over the place. When they travel to the Middle East for business, they're escorted by a secret service. What is this about? And so you have an ethical issue 
And if you were John Kelly, you'd, you're standing there in the Oval Office, and one of the kids comes in and says, Dad, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but uh, I just had a great trip, and don't worry, our hotel empire is going to really be— What if they said that? What would you do as the— I don't know what whether it's happened to John, but I could imagine it would be a difficult position to be in because you'd say to yourself, wait a minute, he's making these important decisions. I mean, what's the motive? Is it business? Is it personal? What's this about? You don't know. And the fourth issue, of course, is the legal thing. I, I don't know if that's going to happen to someone like John Kelly, but it's conceivable that you could find yourself. What if the boss says, you tell that guy to knock it off over there. Said, uh, Mr. President, uh, you want me to call uh, the Rosenstein and tell him to stop the investigation? He says, no, 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 that would be illegal. But you know what I'm asking. You know what I'm asking. Did you do it? Said, uh, well, uh, and so you're in the position of sort of, it's, it's like when you're a, a junior officer, they always tell you, said, if you're a, a lieutenant, don't tell that sergeant. You don't care how he does it. Just get it done. Because he's going to do something illegal to get it done, maybe, and you're going to be responsible. We used to have this happen all the time when there were inspections and you were missing parts. And, and, and there'd be always the temptation for some lieutenant to say, Sergeant, I don't care how you do it, but you've got to get me a sprocket for this tank tonight. So when you're a military officer and you're thrown into that environment, these are perplexing challenges. Now, John's lived with it for a year and more than a year. He survived it uh, so far, and um, he's a smart, savvy guy, uh, but I hope he's walking on the right side of the lines. Right, right. Well, there's certainly lots to, to unpack here. We could keep talking about this stuff all day long, but I know we have to start to, to bring things to a, to a close here. I want to make sure that we uh, do, do get in, though. You are visiting Penn State today uh, with your um, Renew America. Yeah, Renew so, America. So um, tell us about that. What, what are you, well, are you hoping I, to achieve we're, that we're organization? We're here to, to try to— See if young people are interested in renewing the country. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at politics today, it's, it's a nasty, cynical uh, business. It's a name-calling. It's digging up dirt on people. It's oppo. Um, it's entertaining if you're not in it, but is it good for the country? And we've seems to me we've drifted off path. If you look back over history, and I'm old enough mm-hmm. to get away with doing this, so you go back 100 years, although I wasn't here in 100 years ago, but if you look at it, you see the politics in America goes in these 30- and 40-year cycles, strategic, economic, political, cultural. You have to see the big picture, and then you have to break through the fog of 20 and entertainment fog of 24-hour news. And so I'm hoping that we're going to mobilize a core of young people across this country that will demand real answers from people running for office. I'm not running. I've done that. I know a lot about the process. And I can tell you this, if you're asking real questions, you will change the political system because you can't count on the media to ask those questions. This is not the, the first kind of group like this that has, you know, that's that's around. Some have cropped up since 2016. Some have been around, you know, prior to that. I'm curious as to, you know, how you see uh, Renew America kind of fitting into that landscape of other groups that are also trying to I do this we'll work. I think we'll work with everybody who's interested. Right. We have no claim to special wisdom or monopoly. All we offer is a platform, mm-hmm. an opportunity for interchange. Uh, and to talk to like-minded people on a nonpartisan mm-hmm. basis. 
There are many other groups, but most of them are partisan. We're not going to be partisan. I was in the Ford administration. I worked with Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Fourth of July, 1976, my wife and I and my six-year-old son were on the White House lawn watching the fireworks for the 200th anniversary of American independence, and Don Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, came over. I was a major. He recognized me. I don't think he knew my name, but he came over and shook hands with me. And um, so I was in a Republican White House. I was working for Bill Clinton when I was a four-star and a three-star. So I've seen it on both sides. I'd like to see a nonpartisan group who simply cares about the country. Um, last thing here I want to get to. We always end our podcast with four mood of the nation poll questions. Thinking specifically about American politics, uh, what makes you angry? Oh, I think discrimination and uh, especially the demeaning of people, the ridicule, the sarcasm uh, from the president of the United States. The president of the United States is supposed to inspire people. He's not supposed to ridicule. He's supposed to unite, not divide. I don't say this as a partisan comment. I say this as an American who served his country and worked with both parties. Uh, what makes you proud? Oh, I'm proud of the young people that I see, people that are doing their best, that have hope, that have faith in institutions, um, and not only the military people, but young people across the board. I think we've got wonderful, we've got wonderful, let's call it, human potential in this country. Uh, what makes you worry? I'm worried about the environment. Um, the truth is that we're not going to meet the UN IPCC targets of one and a half degrees centigrade rise in temperature. We're going to overshoot way over. We're going to have some catastrophic effects. We're going to have to be serious about this. Maybe not. Maybe we'll wait 10 years, maybe 20 years. But the earth is responding to human economic development, and we're bearing the consequences. And then finally, what gives you hope? Uh, well, I'm back on the um, young people that I see across America because they start fresh and they have so many skills and so many insights and so, so much access to information that if they are motivated and understand that the world's waiting for them to take the lead, then there's no stopping America. Well, we'll leave it there. General Clark, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, we're back. Uh, Chris, what struck you about uh, Jenna's interview with uh, General Clark? I was surprised and, and I think I fair to say pleased when he, when he mentioned this idea of, uh, of universal service, the idea that there is something um, it improves our democracy if we are brought together, A, um, to meet people and interact with people that we don't normally have the opportunity to do, do so, and also um, with the idea of, of service, that we owe something to this nation. Yeah, that was all, that was all quite interesting. And, uh, and, and some presidents have talked about that. Right. I've talked about that as it's well. A I mean, tough, with, it's a tough sell, and I don't know that it's going to go anywhere. But, but, I think, but one thing that struck me there is that I, I kind of heard him saying that serving in the military now does not necessarily expose you to that wide diversity. Now, I mean, statistically, oh, that, yeah, that is an right? statistically yeah. we know it, it's true mm -hmm. that, that the military is now pulling from a smaller demographic mm -hmm. than, it, than it used to because it's, a, it's an opportunity right. for some that they for need. For whom is it an opportunity? Yeah, for, and, right. and for 
those for who don't need the opportunity, they they largely mm-hmm. choose not mm-hmm. to do it. Especially and, and, when it when being in the military means going to a war, right? I mean, it's not well, like it, it was when when in the eighties when I was in college. You know, it was it was a free college, and then you served six years and you were done, right? But now, if you're going to Afghanistan... Well, now it's a military of warriors. Right. I mean, that's what I heard him say, right. is that they're more narrowly... Def- they more they more narrowly define themselves mm-hmm. as, as warriors. He, you know, he, his, he mentioned and, and spoke at length about this MacArthur speech of duty, duty honor, service. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of... Um, high-mindedness to that ideal that um, extends beyond the idea of you just being the tip of the spear. And, and so I think he feels like that has been lost. Yes, as well as an investment by people into what he referred to as the national defense fabric, right? That, that, that Americans, that uh, I, I thought I heard him saying that, that, a, that, that he doesn't see a wide enough swath of American society as having being invested personally in our security. Sure. I, I was also uh, glad that uh, Jenna asked him about generals serving at the highest level of American service. Yeah, you, you've expressed this Yeah, this I, you know, we read a lot of books on democracy, mm-hmm. uh, but it was only David Frum that, that raised this a, a, as a concern of his, that, uh, you know, as he saw it, uh, taking nothing away from these people as individuals, but just that a lifetime in military service is different than a lifetime in fundamentally in, in democratic governance. Right. The, the ethos of the place is different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the the commitment to democratic values as opposed to getting things done, mm-hmm. uh, which is something actually that he talked to mm-hmm. a, a little bit, is, is very different. And uh, you know, I don't know that I heard him reflecting it quite the same way that David Frum did. Uh, because he went and focused a lot on his respect for McMaster and uh, and Mattis and and uh, General Kelly as as well, uh, but you know I kind of have some sympathy to what uh, David Frum was saying that uh, I, I worry sometimes about all these generals at the highest levels of government because I, I question the commitment to democratic governance sometimes. well as, as opposed to just hierarchy and getting things done. And I also think it's just a matter of just how do you function well in an environment that is just so fundamentally different, with such fundamentally different expectations, and where disagreement is the coin of the realm. It's just you're never going to get around it. Whereas in the military... When you're the general. Right. Yeah. You, you, what you say happens, right? And, and the only thing you have to be careful about, according to General Clark, is how you convey your orders. But that <laughs> your orders are going to be followed is not, is not at issue, not a question. I agree with you. I think he, he got that point across, yeah. across quite, quite well. As he did much, he's very articulate. You know, it gets us thinking about about the the role of the military in a democracy, and and how being in the military might, I don't know, shape us as democratic citizens. Well, I you know I think if you are going to make that kind of sacrifice and um, um, commit yourself to the defense of our nation, that you ought to have representation in the in the body that's making those decisions yes and it's a voice that we need to hear i agree yeah Yeah. so uh, why don't we uh why don't we end democracy works on that note today that sounds good to me from uh, the mccourtney institute for democracy this has been democracy works thanks for listening